Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I certainly do not intend to allow a brutal and sacrilegious gang of criminal miscreants to dictate the future direction of my family, nor to weaken my family's commitment to do the right thing, no matter the cost. In the final analysis, it is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on which we shall all eventually be judged. Joshua Boyle, as he arrived in Canada, many questions being asked him up, Mr. Boyle, and what happened over the last five years and how he happened to be returned to Canada at the time that he was. Lots of questions being asked. Asked. And with me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network to address some of this questioning that's going on is uh, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada, now security and justice analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Scott, uh, I've been seeing emails certainly all morning and uh, saw quite a few yesterday. People asking what's going on, what's the backstory here, and some people wondering whether we're facing another Omar Cotter situation, and that primarily is raised by uh, folks who email and say he was married to Omar Cotter's sister. So what are we facing? Well, um, I think everybody's sort of uh, uh, initial instinct of this is weird is uh, absolutely correct. I mean... It's a very strange situation where, you know, somebody takes their seven-month pregnant wife uh, backpacking in the Taliban's backyard, you know, and then gets abducted and is held. Um, That's just an unusual situation. The fact that he was married to uh, Zainab Kadr, as you point out, uh, is also interesting. He uh, apparently got to uh, know the the family. around uh, 2007, when Zainab was one of the leading voices on the Free Omar Khadr movement, and he essentially uh, saw it online and went to Parliament Hill, met Zainab. Uh, they married in, I believe it was 2009, and lasted for about a year. Uh, and then he uh, met his uh, the wife that he was abducted with, Caitlin Coleman, from uh, the United States, uh, and they went off sort of on this excursion and as it was originally described for years, as they were just sort of, you know, hiking around and backpacking, his latest statements, uh, including when he was uh, uh, returned to Toronto last night, he now describes himself as a, quote, pilgrim, and that he was delivering some kind of specialized services to people uh, in the area that nobody else in the world or other governments or NGOs were doing. So it's, it's just sort of the changing circumstances of this and the oddity of it, including the one that I think probably struck a lot of people, too, was that after he was, uh, uh, take your pick, rescued, released, whatever it was, uh, 
by the Pakistanis who turned him over to uh, American officials. He uh, refused to get on an American plane that they were going to send him to uh, Bagram Air Base and then on to Germany and back, um, ostensibly because, as he told his father, you know, he disagreed with the entire American approach to uh, Guantanamo Bay and Omar Khadr, and it sounds like he was afraid that they might hold him. Uh, Michelle Shepard from the Toronto Star actually reported that, hearing that in the conversation. His father reported that, and then... Again, as he got off the plane last night and he was giving his statement, he completely contradicted that and said that, no, that was not true and that he would have got on any plane to get out of anywhere. So I think it's, it, it's this almost narcissistic you know, desire to be in the, uh, the spotlight that is uh, causing a lot of people to wonder, and I think quite legitimately, what's going on and, as you say, what's coming next. And uh, didn't he also say last night that there were various countries vying, and that that's the word he used, vying, yes. to transport him, his wife, and his kids from Afghanistan out of there? Yeah, I mean, that is the thing that, that struck me, and I actually watched the video clips of the interviews. It's this um, and in some ways, it is similar, isn't it, to the uh, what we've seen with um, uh, the Qatar uh, family members. It's this narcissistic yeah. um, sense of always wanting to be in the spotlight and always claiming as though you know there's something that uh, uh, that individual alone is capable of doing. Or you know what I mean? It, it's that kind of thing that makes me think that I suspect we're going to be hearing from uh, this guy. Uh, about himself in the, uh, in the days and weeks to come. Now, we don't have any answers to these questions, but one of the other questions that is asked time and again is, will we find ourselves, we uh, collectively as Canadians, find ourselves in a situation where Mr. Boyle may decide that Canada really didn't do everything that Canada could have and should have for him, and people want to know, could this be a situation where there would be another lawsuit and potentially the Prime Minister would be cutting another check. I know we're getting ahead of yeah. where, where the situation is, but that's the question that's being asked. Is there, is there any legitimate chance that that sort of thing could take place? Well, as I, as I think you know, I mean, I don't think it was legitimate that the government of Canada cut the check to yeah. Omar Cotter that they did. So yeah. the one thing in our uh, legal system, uh, you know, is that pretty much anybody can bring an application for anything. So I don't know that there's any... Uh, basis to definitively say yes or no to that. He, from what I have seen of him, I have not heard him make a specific complaint in relation to any Canadian activity or inactivity. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's uh, a little early to be making uh, that kind of an assessment. He was uh, speaking very strongly about the Haqqani network, and he was calling on the Afghan government to make good for for what happened to him. Yeah, I mean, he... um, there's been a change in the facts since when he arrived last night and even on to today where he's you know, now said that he had a daughter that was born and that apparently he named, or they named Martyr, strange name, um, and that the, the, uh, uh, the Haqqani uh, uh, group actually uh, killed his daughter as well, too. So that, that's another uh, factual twist. The one thing that I, I must admit, and I, and I bet you Roy will never really know the answer to it, is exactly how it is that they came to be, take your pick, uh, rescued or released. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about next. Well, it sounds like the Americans, and I know this will probably upset some people, but I think the sort of newly invigorated, as a result of the new administration in the United States, American special forces uh, took uh, some special efforts and tracked down where these people were being held, and contrary to what the Pakistani officials have said for years, that it was believed to be uh, in Pakistan, and were ready to to move. 
They gave the information to the Pakistani authorities because it was in Pakistan. And when they went back to take a look, it turns out that they had actually moved. And then the Pakistanis themselves uh, went to the uh, uh, found them driving in a car, which makes you wonder why they would have moved them out of a location and stuck them in a car where they would be more vulnerable to be captured. There's been conflicting reports about whether or not the abductors were killed or not killed, and then they're handed over, and, you know, the, uh, the Pakistanis' uh, military authorities look good in doing this, and it may be, as uh, the, uh, uh, Caitlin Coleman, the mother, pointed out, her father pointed out, sorry, uh, that, uh, you know, this was in uh, no small measure due to actually Donald Trump stepping up and issuing that kind of a warning that he did to Pakistan several months ago. We, I, my guess is we will never know the full truth about that, but that's an intriguing situation. I would like the Carter family to step up and say something about this man, uh, particularly his former wife. If she has any interest in, in, in him and what happened to him in Afghanistan, then I'd like to hear from Zainab Carter. I must, I must admit, Roy, you and I agree on most things, but this is one where I disagree. For me, it's always a good day when I don't hear something from the Carter <laughs> yeah. family. But on this case, I'd like to hear something from them. Why? Because I'd like to know whether they're involved in any way. <laughs> and they doesn't matter what answer they give you, it's read between the lines and listen to the voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is interesting. The, the one brother, Abdullah, who was a, uh, an arms trafficker in Pakistan and Afghanistan, these are exactly the kind of people that the, uh, the family had contacts with. Yeah. But I have not seen anything that suggests any kind of contact or involvement. But, Scott, that to, me, that to me is still sort of maybe the most intriguing, intriguing sidebar that he was married to Zainab Carter, yes. and then shortly after that, he takes his new wife, who is pregnant, on a walking tour of Afghanistan. Well, it, it's, it's, it's weird. definitely odd, and I mean, given Zainab Carter's uh, rather extremist uh, views, which are, are quite well known, exactly. um, has this guy converted to Islam? Uh, he actually described himself in one of the statements, again, that was reported by Michelle Shepard, uh, he's making a reference to himself as a as a Sufi, which is a as you know as a as a branch of the Islamic faith. Well, would you know, Zay, would Zainab Khadr marry anyone who wasn't Muslim? It does make you wonder, doesn't it? it? Does make you wonder. Although that doesn't necessarily explain, uh, you know, as you as you quite correctly point out, the absurdity of uh, taking your, uh, you know, your uh, wife, especially a pregnant wife, pregnant on, wife for a walking tour in Afghanistan. In, in, yeah. In, in, in Afghanistan. And then he says that he was in villages far removed from where any NGOs could provide any meaningful assistance, but he was helping the villagers. Doing what? That's, yeah, that's what... That's what exactly what was he doing? That's what struck me in the narcissistic sense of things, is that it's that sort of description of him, him doing something that no one else could, and him having yeah. this enlightened view. And even if you read some of his statements that he's made... You know, that our, what was the one that you had in the opening clip, that uh, his actions will be judged by his intentions, not its consequences? I found a lot of multisyllabic words in his presentation. Yeah, well, that's the, an interesting take on things. It's yeah. sort of like my way or, uh, you know, nothing yeah. else. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Joshua Boyle's statement, part of his statement, this was the end of his statement last night as he arrived in Canada. I certainly do not intend to allow a brutal and sacrilegious gang of criminal miscreants to dictate the future direction of my family, nor to weaken my family's commitment to do the right thing, no matter the cost. In the final analysis, it is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on which we shall all eventually be judged. 
So uh, there is what Scott referenced. So there it is, uh, Scott. This is how we'll all be judged. Yeah, it's, you see what I mean, though, about the, that sort of grandiose yeah. perspective that's there, that somehow he's above all of the rest of us and everything else, and that it, it's just a, a strange sort of a, uh, an attitude for somebody that has been through what this, uh, this family has been through. And this is obviously going to be very, very difficult for them going forward. These people have been in captivity for, uh, you know, for five years. So it would be hopeful that the focus of their efforts and their family's efforts would be on them getting their um, stability uh, back in place and as opposed to having the TV cameras turned on. Yeah, so maybe it's not entirely fair to be uh, analyzing every word that he utters as he comes back, but, but you can't help but look and no, listen can't. to what he says. Yeah. And when he called, it, when he called them uh, the Hakani Network a sacrilegious gang, what does that mean? Well, what he has said, and he's put it in other statements as well, too, he's described them as not even being Muslims. Uh, the, the assumption was that the, the Taliban and their various uh, affiliates were motivated by this uh, you know, extremist uh, version of Islam, and these guys have more of a history of actually uh, being more like a criminal gang and in uh, trying to make money, and uh, that's what his latest statements, I think it's now his third round of statements that he's made, is that uh, that's why he's saying they were uh, kidnapped in the first place because his wife was pregnant and they thought that they could get money out of the Americans because they wouldn't want to see an, uh, a child born in uh, captivity. Um, I, I just frankly hope that for however that might turn out to be the case, that uh, the uh, focus is on uh, getting uh, people's uh, stability back in place as mm -hmm. opposed to you know, being on another uh, uh, TV show or... Uh, doing another interview. You know, uh, I was watching... Well, I'm not particularly optimistic about that. Yeah. Well, I was watching uh, Mr. Boyle, and then I uh, was looking at his kids um, in, a, in another video. And as children do, particularly his little son, just seemed to be fascinated with what was going on around him. And they have this such an innocent uh, look about them because they're little kids. And that's what people are going to have to focus on as well, making sure that these kids come out of this okay, as okay as possible, and uh, that they're properly addressed. And that they are uh, being raised in an appropriate environment mm -hmm. that has, uh, you know, its focus on their welfare as opposed to some of what uh, Mr. Boyle's last comments you just played, you know, and his nobler purposes. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear more about this, and I'm sure we will, but I'd like to hear the truth, and I still would like to hear something from the Cotters, because somehow they're part of this play. Well, at least from what we know right now, they're only part of it because of the fact that he was previously married well, I know. to Zainab. I know. Okay, so, you know, there's nothing that I've seen that has suggested in any way that the Cotter family had any involvement in him being there and being kidnapped or in what was occurring with him during the course of time mm -hmm. while that took place. Yeah. And, and I, I do grant you, should that turn out not to be the case, that, of course, would be newsworthy, but I have seen nothing that suggests that. Scott, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, Roy. Always great talking to you. Scott Newark, former um, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association and uh, security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada, now security and justice analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. England's chief medical officer declared that antibiotic resistance could spell, quote, the end of modern medicine. And that was also the World Health Organization, from what I understand. 
and the English chief medical officer warned about a post-antibiotic apocalypse. That's a word that does not allow any equivocation. That's a word that says doom and gloom. So we spoke with Jason Tetrell, the germ guy, microbiologist and author of The Germ Code, a couple of weeks ago about this issue with uh, antibiotics becoming less effective. And he's back with us. Uh, Jason, now we're talking about, or at least the English chief medical officer, is talking about a post-antibiotic apocalypse, and the World Health Organization is talking about the end of modern medicine. Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, we used to call it the post-antibiotic era, but I guess era doesn't have the same impact as apocalypse. Um, this well, it's not, scaring me. Well, that's the thing. I think it's time to, for people to start getting a bit scared because, well, we've been talking about this off and on now for probably five years, you and I, and I've been saying the exact same thing. We've got to stop using antibiotics. We've got to get people to stop asking for antibiotics when they have a cold and the flu. We've got to get it out of agriculture. And let me tell you something. I mean, I know it sounds, to coin a phrase, taxing on the listener, But this is what's going to happen. We are now at a stage where we have bacterial infections that are resistant to not just one, two, or three antibiotics, but all antibiotics. We call that pan-drug resistant. You can't get treated with an antibiotic if you get that bug. And it's happening more and more often. And we've actually heard in the news that people are dying as a result of this. And so... What the uh, chief medical officer in England is doing is essentially raising the stakes because, well, to be honest with you, very few people have been, you know, listening to, to the calls uh, because, you know, in 2015, it was initially called a crisis. In 2016, we started talking about having um, an inability to treat. And now finally in two, 2017, we haven't really seen any great change so it's now time for people to start understanding you're going to have to go, you know, th- there's going to be a point where you're going to go to a hospital and say, doctor, I- I've got an infection. You know, it could be a cinetobacter, it could be Neisseria gonorrhea, the gonorrhea uh, pathogen, uh, could be something called Klebsiella pneumoniae, and they're not going to be able to treat you. So whatever happens to you at that point happens to you. Well, it's um, like it's like medicine 200 years ago. Well, sort of. if you can get it out of the person, absolutely. Um, but uh, let's just say something like tuberculosis, which is also starting to get there. You, you can't do anything about it. So you either take the lung out and you put in the iron lung, uh, wow. which a lot of people probably remember if they're over the age of 50, um, but uh, you know, there, there's not going to be a treatment for you. Now, this doom and gloom has been sort of tempered, if you will, because we have been trying to find in research new directions trying to use biologies like viruses against bacteria or peptides, um, little small proteins that have an effect on these bacteria and kill them. And we're getting somewhere with it. But the problem is, is we were anticipating that this would take us to about 2030, and then we would have the ability to go through. Um, Unfortunately, we're losing that time faster than we can keep up in the labs and in the clinical trials. And we may end up with several years where we literally don't have an answer. And this is where we're going. So how quickly could this, in fact, 
start to manifest itself, where, it, where it's not just the odd person, yeah. but it's a whole lot of people who go to an already overstressed healthcare system, well, and, and they say, sorry, really can't do anything for you because our previous antibiotic medicines or medications just won't work. Yeah. Well, let, let's put it this way. Um, it really started happening around 2011 when we started seeing this um, sort of appearing in patients coming in from the community. It had been in hospitals off and on here and there, but it wasn't really anything to talk about. 2011, it really started. By 2013, those case numbers went up to from just singles to the dozens. Now, this is worldwide, so again, not a heck of a lot. Now we're starting to see those hundreds turning into thousands in just a few short years. So by 2020, we may be seeing possibly tens of thousands. That's and three years, two years. Yeah, in the next three years probably. And that's the problem that we're facing right now is that we really need to get people to just stop asking for antibiotics when they're not, uh, not necessary and stop thinking doctors uh, are, are being mean to you by essentially saying, you know, we'd like to do some testing first. Because, honestly, you can do a test and within four hours know exactly what the bug is and know exactly what antibiotic you're going to use to get that person feel better. And I don't care. You can wait those four hours. Sure you can. I was talking to, a, to an emergency room doctor um, just a few days ago, and he was telling me that patients will come in and they obviously have the flu or they have some kind of viral infection, mm -hmm. but they will insist that they want an antibiotic and they will not leave until they get an antibiotic, and eventually the hospital where the docs are already two to three hours behind mm -hmm. in getting to patients will give them the antibiotic just to get them out of there. Oh, I know. Um, you know, one of the things that I remember talking about about five years ago when we kept hearing about this. Now, to be honest, Canadians are getting better. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was about 66% of people who were asking. It's gone down to probably somewhere between a quarter to a third of people. So it's getting better. Mm -hmm. But honestly, if... If you can give somebody a prescription for a sugar pill, <laughs> I think that might be a much better option than to just cave in and give them an antibiotic right. because they're not going to change. And we know that there's going to be about 30% of the population who are just going to stick to whatever the heck they think is true, regardless of what people like myself and doctors and others, apparently we just are a matter of opinion. So the fact is, let's figure out a way that we can give these people something that will make them feel better. You know, call sugar some strange name like uh, aluzimabab or something, and then they'll take that, yeah. and then they'll feel better, yeah. um, and we won't have to worry about antibiotic resistance. Like, uh, it sounds ludicrous, I know. No, I understand what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. Here's something else to remember. Um, just seeing stories now that the plague is making a strong recovery mm -hmm. in some parts of the world, particularly in Madagascar now. And it's the strain of plague which killed almost 50 million people in the Middle Ages. It almost wiped out humanity, and it's picking a comeback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we see plague coming back. Uh, it's cyclic, okay? Yeah. Um, and, and we're still not exactly sure why that is. It could be due to climactic factors, or it could be due to population. Yeah, but if you can't fight it with antibiotics, you're in serious trouble. Well, we're lucky enough that we still can fight it with certain types of antibiotics. Yeah. Um, so we're lucky in that sense. And plague doesn't come around more than once every few years. And when it does, it's usually... Um, what we call susceptible. It dies okay. when you treat it with antibiotics. So in that sense, we're doing okay. But uh, God forbid, if we ever get to a point where these bugs, Yersinia pestis, starts actually resisting some of the antibiotics that we rely on, yeah. 
then um, remember that Ebola scare we had back Yeah, and I've got only about 10 seconds, Jason. I was going to talk about, ask you about the Ebola situation. Uh, Ebola, we have to become aware We now. have to become aware. But plague could make Ebola seem like a joke. Uh, Jason Tetro, the germ guy, microbiologist. He's the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Thank you, Jason. Talk to you soon. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Jason Tetro. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And so now the... Uh, the grubbers who've been after your money and mine, federal government, and its successive federal governments, only this one has found a new way to really upset Canadians. This one has found that in their highly publicized effort to achieve tax fairness, that's what they said, they've managed to really upset millions of Canadians, small business owners, doctors, dentists, farmers, lawyers, anyone who owns a small business. But they made it sound like it was going to be big because it was a corporation, the corporation of two or three or, or four. But they were going to go after them and, and get their money. I said earlier on the program, it was like somebody sticking their fingers in your pocket and rooting around for loose change or grabbing your wallet and looting around, rooting around for some looting, yeah, looting your wallet. I don't need to adjust that. And then they managed to really irritate people from coast to coast by suggesting some 2 million retail employees in this country were going to have their employer discounts taxed. Now, it's on the books, from what I understand. I, I, can't, I have never read the tax code. It's so long and so confusing. I've even had accountants tell me, it confuses them. But they were going to go after the uh, employees' discounts, and that is somewhere in the tax code. There is something, there's a, there's, a, there's a passage or two or however many paragraphs they devoted to it. But you're supposed to pay taxes on, on your uh, discounts from your employer. And we're not talking about people who are making a hell of a lot of money here. We're talking to people who about people who are making a living and who have an opportunity to buy something that they need for themselves or their kids at a discount from their employer, so the money stays in the business. It's reinvested. But the government went after, was going to go after the money. And now what have they done? Well, the, the, <laughs> the minister, who's responsible for national revenue, blames the Canada Revenue Agency, Diane Le Boutillier's press secretary, said, um, among other things, this document, that was what the CRA was going to do, going to go after people's money, this document was not approved by the minister, and we are deeply disappointed that the agency posted something that has been misinterpreted like this. The agency issued a guidance document that does not reflect our government's intentions, and the Minister of National Revenue has instructed officials to clarify the wording. It's not confusing wording. They were going to go after your money. They were going to make people in the retail sector who got a bit of a discount from their employer to pay taxes on that discount. It's not confusing. It's just alarming to the government that they've got the small business sector, and now they've got 2 million retail employees. These are all votes, by the way, or political contributions. You can look at it another way, who are piling on and saying, what are you people doing? 
And what it proves to me is that the prime minister and his federal minister of finance, both of them multimillionaires, know very little about really addressing people's concerns or the middle class. They so constantly say they want to improve the lives for. We're going to be speaking with Dan Kelly, the CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, a little later on in the hour. And with us now is Senator Denise Batters, conservative senator from Saskatchewan. The senator had a lot to do with the public sentiment and public awareness of what was going on in this whole issue about tax fairness, Senator. How could you? How could you? How could you possibly interfere with tax fairness? <laughs> well, I think there's uh, no, there's nothing fair about uh, the, the Trudeau government tax plan that they continue to try to implement. And uh, it was really, in the end, it was the overwhelming reaction of Canadians that forced the Trudeau government to back down on this crazy idea about um, taxing employee discounts. And uh, and at the end of it, um, it started over the Thanksgiving weekend. So when I first noticed uh, this particular measure being talked about, I think it was in the Globe and Mail, um, I, I tweeted about that, uh, just saying, you know, I couldn't believe that they were doing this. This is not at all about the 1%. It just showed how desperate the Trudeau government is for cash to finance their wild overspending. And it was really a direct attack on the middle class and those working hard to join it, as the Liberal government is constantly saying. So really, this particular measure was, um, it also became an attack on minimum wage earners, like teenagers working at a mall. So it was a ridiculous idea. It produced a lot of mockery, and I might have participated in some of that, and I think that was um, what Canadians got involved in, too. One of my Facebook followers said on that uh, Thanksgiving Monday, don't forget to parcel up the turkey leftovers and send them to Ottawa. Justin wants his cut. So, you know, when you're in politics, when you're laughing at a government, that is deadly. That's bad. And I think it was really that that forced the Trudeau government three full days later to back down on this and, you know, kind of throw the Canada Revenue Agency under the bus. Um, Are we supposed to believe, really, are we supposed to believe when the National Revenue Minister says it was CRA's initiative and they really had misinterpreted what the government wanted, are we supposed to buy this? I I personally don't think so. In late September, I mean, this had been in the works with um, this Trudeau government for months, and apparently this interpretation bulletin was posted in late 2016, and then in late September, the House of Commons Finance Committee heard from the Retail Council of Canada representative who warned them about this and said that they really need to find... um, a solution to this because this was a big problem. So I would suggest they were keenly aware of this. The finance minister would have at least one staffer whose major duties would include monitoring that committee and everything that comes out of it. It's chaired by a Liberal MP, Wayne Easter. And that particular representative that came to that committee was um, former Prime Minister Paul Martin's deputy chief of staff, so someone very friendly to the Liberal government. Um, And really, it was Canadians in the end that forced them to back down on it. And I think Canadians should be very proud of it. Did did it surprise you? By the way, there'll be people saying that all you're doing is is advertising or promoting for the Conservative Party. Of course, there's a certain amount of that involved because you're, you're there for the Conservative Party. But this was a liberal initiative. But backfired, misfired, and now they, they, they have to have to live with it. When you first heard this, when you first heard that the current government, with this constant talk about improving the, the quality of life for the middle class, when you first heard that they were going to go after the discounts that employees in the retail sector got from their employers, did you have to read it two or three times? I didn't believe it the first time I read it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I tweeted, like, employee discounts, exclamation mark, question mark. I couldn't believe that they were doing this. Ten bucks off your sweater. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I at one point when the second day into it, they still hadn't backed down. I mean, this should have been something that if it was really just a simple mistake, it should have taken them a few hours to back down. Mm -hmm. But it took them three full days. So late into day two, when the minister's office confirmed they were going to tax employee discounts, I tweeted something like, "Ministers uh, Trudeau's minister of taxing chicken salad sandwiches is not backing down. So, you know, this was, uh, this was just really something to be mocked. It was so... Um, you know, antithetical to what they are always trying to promote that they're trying to do. And that's like the, the case with so many of the Trudeau government's policies. Yeah, Senator, what do you really expect? What, what, sorry, what do you expect mm -hmm. on Monday morning? Mr. Morneau has, uh, has, has put out the call for the, the caucus to be in Ottawa on a Monday morning at 8 o'clock, which I understand is not all that usual. What do you expect to come out of that uh, out of the government now? How will they try to fix this? What what's their next scheme to get your cash in mind? Not that I have well, any. That meeting on Monday morning, I believe, is probably about the unfair tax changes, which is really the very you know if employees if Canadian employees were worried about their employee discounts being taxed by the Trudeau government, then they should be very worried that the unfair tax changes that the Trudeau government is proposing to small business could cost those employees their very jobs. And uh, I'm concerned that this is what Minister Morneau is going to be briefing the Liberal caucus about. That is a very rare occasion to bring um, MPs in two days early to have a, um, a caucus meeting. They normally have caucus meetings on Wednesday morning every week, as we do. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I think that that's very scary because Canadians continue to, they need to let their Liberal MPs know that they don't support these unfair tax yeah, changes. I'm sure they will. And they stand up for their local businesses. Do you think that they're going to back off as far as the small businesses are concerned in this country, or are they going to go to the wall with this one? I don't know. They've heard certainly from a ton of Canadians. Canadians have really voiced um, their viewpoints on this, but one of my colleagues uh, made a very good point. MP Dan Albus from BC, he tweeted out this morning saying that if they were really trying to consult over those uh, over the last couple of months in that very shortened consultation period about unfair tax changes, is Minister Morneau really saying that he, in the last 11 days since the consultation period closed, has reviewed 22,000 people's submissions? Um, and a lot of people took a lot of considerable time and effort. Farmers took time during harvest to put forward submissions um, for the federal government. A lot of people even paid um, accountants and that sort of thing to help them with their submissions um, businesses and organizations and that sort of thing. So if he's actually doing more than what Dan Elbis called a drive-by consultation, they shouldn't be able to render, um, if they're going to have some realistic tweaks, important changes to these tax uh, reforms that they're proposing, it should take a lot more than 11 days. And I'm concerned yeah. that it's going to be just very small changes to these devastating um, proposals that they're trying to bring in. Well, uh, we're going to find out what uh, comes out of this thing on Monday. Eventually, we'll find out. We may not find out Monday morning, although they'll leak to whomever they trust uh, what they want people to know initially. But what I think they're also doing is creating momentum for something that's been around for a long time, which really digs into the tax uh, dollars the government takes in, and that's the underground economy. People will, people will, will, pe people will play even more in the underground economy because they feel that they're being, being ripped off by government and so when they have the opportunity to have something done for them and not pay tax on, on, on the work that's done or the thing that they buy, they'll do it. Absolutely. And they won't lose sleep over it either. 
Yeah, and it just shows the fundamental lack of understanding that this Trudeau government has for small business and, frankly, for the economy. I mean, they are messing up on so many fronts with this economy. They promised a modest deficit of $10 billion. Yeah. Well, then they've ballooned it up to $30 billion, and now they're bragging about the fact that this particular year, well, hey, it was only $18 billion. Okay. They're bragging about that. And that was just because they didn't spend a bunch of money on infrastructure, as they had promised to do. Senator, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much, and uh, it's really important, again, for Canadians to keep contacting their Liberal MPs all this weekend. Please fill up their voicemails and email inboxes to let them know they don't want those tax changes to go through. So the way it works is contact your Liberal MP and vote for your Conservative MP. Absolutely, yes. That is the way it works. (laughs) Conservatives will actually... um, respect local businesses and the Canadians okay. who rely on those businesses for their paychecks. Senator, thank you for the time. Thanks. Thank you. Senator Denise Batters, remember that. Call your Liberal MP and vote for your Conservative MP or candidate. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So they're halfway through their mandate to the Trudeau government, and they're after more of your tax money, more of your money to turn it into tax revenue. That's what they're after. Because, as Senator Batters said, they're overspending, their deficits are out of out of whack, out of range, and uh, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. I want to read you an email, and I'll talk to Dan Kelly. Dan will be interested in this, and we'll take more of your calls. Dan will be interested in this email as president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing Canada's small and medium-sized businesses from Marie. Hi, Roy. My husband and I are retired retailers. We worked six days a week for years with no pension plan, few days off, and few vacations. Our kids had friends whose parents worked in the public sector and went off on vacation at every school holiday. Our kids stayed home and helped out with the housework or at our business. We retired a few years ago, sold our business and building, and have been enjoying our life. The new liberal tax plan will essentially tax our retirement fund out of existence, and we'll be looking for jobs. The sale of our business was our pension plan. In order to be truly fair, why are the public sector wages and benefits never brought into the conversation? I certainly didn't get any of their vacation time, health benefits, annual raises, nor job security. How's that fair? But politicians won't go there because the unions would lose their minds. We are always the low-hanging fruit, and they do have their fingers in our pockets and our businesses every turn. Where will our economy be when entrepreneurs leave because there is no benefit to working in Canada? Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thank you for the time. What do you make of that email? Well, it's a good one, and one we're hearing an awful lot from business owners across Canada on right now. The uh, the sentiment is bang on. There are a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that are pretty unhappy with what they've seen out of Ottawa these days. And while governments search for tax fairness, uh, they seem to be leaving uncovered many of the unfairnesses that exist in the benefit of public civil servants. So what do you expect on Monday when Mr. Morneau uh, hauls the caucus into Ottawa for one of these unusual Monday morning get-togethers. I don't know what he's going to do. I, I, what does your intuition tell you? Well, look, we're we're cautiously optimistic that the government is getting the message. Uh, they thought that uh, through the cover of the summer, uh, through a very short consultation period, they could ram through some huge changes to the way small businesses in Canada are taxed. Uh, but the business community freaked out. Uh, in fact, in doing this uh, for for over 20 years at CFIB, 
I have never seen business owners spontaneously combust the way they did over the last little while. The the right up to the very end, the minister was digging in, saying that while they'll make some tweaks, they are going ahead. The prime minister, for goodness sakes, announced it at the United Nations that they were changing these tax provisions. But I think at the 11th hour, they did get the message that doing this is going to have some serious repercussions, uh, both economically and potentially politically. And so we're starting to see a little bit softer tone from the government. Hopefully that will materialize in some, some big, big changes to the package that they put in, put in place in July. Dan, without giving the Liberals anything to work with, what will your members accept? Well, look, I, there, we have said right from the very beginning that we get that there are some unfairnesses in the tax system, some, some uh, soft points that ne- may need some tightening, that we certainly don't have any tolerance for people setting up fake companies to try to take advantage of the lower rate of taxation on small business when really they're not a business at all. So, so tightening up the rules is not something that we're, we're opposed to. The way that they went about this and the, and the depth of the changes is what, what we've opposed. So if they tightened up some of the rules to ensure that the, the small business deduction is really only going to legit businesses that are, that are trying and working to grow their companies, we probably won't have uh, any major criticism. We have to watch for unintended consequences. This obviously has to be reviewed carefully by tax experts, tax lawyers, and, and accountants. But there is a pathway to success here, and hopefully the Liberals will, will find that balance uh, when they announce the changes on Monday. Uh, we're not sure how quickly that will be out in the public, but uh, one, ex- one expects that, that we'll hear something soon. How confident are you that we, they will, in fact, have heard the message and they will react appropriately. I, you know, I, as I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I'm not wildly optimistic, though, uh, because they've made they've made such huge pronouncements about the uh, unfairness that exists. I, I feel like they're going to need to do something. Uh, they and I think that there, as I said, there is a pathway to success here, uh, but a narrow one. I'm hoping that they lay off the passive income piece altogether. At least study that further. On the income splitting or income sharing that they that they've uh, that they're looking to tighten up, I certainly hope that they remove uh, the spouse from the equation. My goodness, the reason we call the mom and pop shops is because mom and pop are both actively involved in one way or another in the business. So there, I think there are some ways that they can go about this uh, and 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 put this issue behind them. But there's been a big serious trust. Uh, issue that has developed between the business community and government, and that's not going to be so easy to fix. Now, what about the underground economy? What effect does the last few weeks have on the underground economy? Will it encourage more people, just as a half the peace sign responds to Ottawa, to participate in the underground economy so they have something done at their homes, or they purchase something, or they have some sort of barter arrangement and everyone avoids paying taxes. How? A couple of questions here. How uh, how much more enticing will the underground economy be after what the Liberals introduced? And how strongly is the underground economy performing anyway? Yeah, look, the underground economy isn't a huge challenge in Canada, but but it quickly could become one if governments start to get too aggressive on the tax side. And we've seen that already. When when income tax rates went above the fifty percent mark, there were a lot of people that said, "Gosh." You know, I'm working more for government than I am for myself. Yeah. What is the point? So, you know, th- this is what causes people to, to start to look underground. I, I know when the HST, for example, the Harmonized Sales Tax, was introduced in Ontario, you started to hear more tradespeople and others 
offer some uh, services on the side. That's not a good thing at all. But we've got, you know, we, we, we've got, just got to make sure that the tax system is kept fair and reasonable for everyone. And that's why lower rates of taxation discourage the underground economy. We've, we've learned this on cigarette taxation, for example. Mm-hmm. When the tax rates go up so high, then people start going and, and buying illegal black market tobacco. Yep. And, that's, and, you know, so we've got these lessons. Unfortunately, we don't always take advantage of them. If Mr. Morneau doesn't hear the message loudly and clearly, and if, to Mr., if Mr. Morneau doesn't re- respond in a way that business wants him to respond, are we going to lose significant numbers of businesses in this country? I don't think it's going to be an overnight thing, but yes, I do think that there are a lot of business owners, we've certainly heard from them, that, have, that are going to say, you know, these welcome mats that are being rolled out in other, in other parts of the world, uh, for example, just across the line in the U.S., maybe we should look into this a little bit more heavily, despite the family connections and the value that we place in, in operating in Canada. So, we, you know, we have to be careful about this, and we're, this is, there's a lot right now that governments are throwing at the business community, quite apart from these, these tax changes. We've got minimum wages going up in Ontario and Alberta, potentially British Columbia. Major changes to labor legislation, carbon carbon taxes, carbon pricing, CPP going up for seven straight years starting in 2019. There's going to be a price to this, and unfortunately, the price isn't going to be borne entirely by the business community because it's going to show itself in terms of job creation and economic growth for the country and, and, and ultimately tax revenue for the, gun, for the government as well. And it's going to show itself in consumer confidence because people who have a job working for a small company, and that's the majority of people who have a job outside the public sector in Canada, most of them work for small and medium-sized businesses, they may be considering buying a major item, a major purchase like a car or some, you know, having a kitchen remodeled or whatever they, they might be considering doing. They may put the brakes on that if they don't know that their employers in a stable situation financially as far as taxes are concerned. If they have any concern, they may lose hours or they may lose their jobs. They won't spend that money. It is a, it's a, it's a giant cycle, and I, I worry that government hasn't got a handle on that. There's been very little positive uh, news out of government. They've just created a whole mess of uncertainty. And that's on top of the uncertainty that, the, what, that we don't blame the government for, for example, lower, lower commodity prices and, and the NAFTA nonsense. I mean, that I don't hold the, the government. I think the, the Trudeau government's done a pretty good job in negotiating our way through the NAFTA uncertainty. But let's not create more for the business community, because ultimately it's going to affect us all as Canadians. This, this, the thought that there is a bunch of rich, fat cat, small business owners out there is absolutely wrong. Sure, there are some people that are doing well. And, and I think in Canada we have, we're, we're running out of uh, enough support. This is Small Business Week. We're starting right now. And, and this is a time when we're supposed to be celebrating the accomplishments and contributions of independent business owners. Unfortunately, the government has just come through several months of, of slamming small business owners and, and making it out that they're all somehow, somehow rich fat cats trying to cheat on their taxes. Yeah. I just want to end this interview with one word to all the business, small business owners. Thank you. Well said, Roy. Thank you, Dan. All the best. Anytime. Dan Kelly, President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, I wish somebody had said this about me. Here it is. Henry Kissinger said this. Maxime, Maxime Cheshire, Washington Post reporter, 
makes you want to commit murder. Sally Quinn makes you want to commit suicide. Somebody said that about me. Sally Quinn joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. She may be the ultimate Washington insider. She's certainly one of the most famous and powerful women in the United States. Washington Post journalist, columnist, network news anchor, married to Washington Post executive editor Ben Bradley. And uh, she is the author of uh, her memoir, Finding Magic, a Spiritual Memoir, and it's published by HarperCollins. Ms. Quinn, what did you do to him? <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you do to Kissinger? By the way, I may end up saying that about you at the end of this interview. <laughs> Yeah, actually, people have said that. I, you know, you could get me in trouble. I might want to commit suicide as soon as <laughs> If you get me to say things I don't want to say. Yeah, I can do that, too, you know. I know. Well, you're, yeah, you have a reputation for being good at that. I do have a reputation for a whole bunch of things. Um, so, look, Ms. Quinn, I want to talk to you about your book, but I also want to talk to you about well, what's going on. Well, would you please call me Sally? Okay, Sally. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about your book, but I also want to talk to you about what's going on in Washington because we're fascinated. We're we're watching from uh, north of your border, of course, and we had during the election campaign when I went in the air and I talked about Donald Trump, 90 to 95 percent of my callers were in favor of of Donald Trump. I suspect the number might be slightly less now, but not much. Um, so so we watch with absolute fascination what's going on. And uh, this past week particularly – has been very strange with the President of the United States, apparently in conflict with the Secretary of State, uh, exchanging angry tweets with a senior senator from his own party. It's, it's a weird situation. Is there any parallel, even as the most oblique and obtuse, is there any parallel between what was going on in the Nixon administration and the Trump administration? Well, you know, I actually, I was, I was just on the phone earlier with... Uh, an old-time Washington Post reporter who's now 85, and we were talking about how we had never seen anything like this before. And um, um, and I had dinner last week with Bob Woodward, you know, of Watergate fame. Sure. Uh, is, you know, my husband. Um, and, and then Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein were involved in the Watergate story. And, and, we, were, and we were also talking about this is different from anything we've ever seen. I mean... Bob warned me to be careful about saying that this is worse than Watergate um, because, you know, we don't know what Mueller is going to come up with. And, you know, if if there is criminal collusion, then it would be worse than Watergate because it would be treason. But we don't know that, and we have to sort of step back and and let Mueller do his job. But I think that... um, well, of course, everybody is sort of fascinated by the tweet storms. But I've never, ever, I mean, Nixon was, um, and Nixon obviously was a serious, flawed person. He was a tragic figure, but he was brilliant. I mean, he had been a senator. He'd been vice president. He was brilliant on foreign policy. I mean, he was, you know, he was good on the economy. He he was very smart and um, and experienced, and I think that we've got a problem here with a president who has no experience and and who is not listening to the the the, the people, the experts around him, even the ones that he put around him. And so, what he's done, I mean, he's sort of systematically made enemies out of every single person in Washington. Well, you know, this is not exactly. 
um, well, Washington is sort of a hotbed of liberalism. It's, you know, 4% of the people in Washington voted for Trump. Trump. But, I mean, he's now turned every Republican almost on the Hill against him. And when Bob Porker, Corker spoke about him, he said, I'm not the only one. And I've, you know, I've heard this from other Republican friends who say that, that they all believe what Corker said. They just are afraid to say so. Um, he's he's humiliated his Secretary of State, Tillerson. Um, he's gone against what General Mattis, who everyone everyone agrees is a fantastic guy and really smart and solid and and responsible. I mean, Tillerson and Mattis, he has gone, gone against the, the advice of his uh, national security advisor and uh, McMaster and his chief of staff, Kelly. Um, you know, he's obviously <laughs> completely alienated the media, you know, by calling all of us, you know, fake news and enemies of the people and, and you know, the failing New York Times and the, and the crooked media. And, you know, my, my father was in the military, and I grew up as an Army brat. And, you know, our motto in the family was duty, honor, country. And so it's very hard for me to have a president who basically calls me an enemy of the people. I mean, it, 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 it's, you know, I think most journalists I know are really, you know, <laughs> uh, very conscientious citizens and and decent Americans. And, you know, the diplomatic corps is in a state of dis- disarray because they're so terrified because they don't know what... I mean, I sat next to an ambassador the other night, and he said... You know, I don't know what to say. My my home office keeps saying, what's going on, what's going on, what does he think, what does he mean? And he said, I have no idea, because he changes his mind every day. And and so the, the foreign community is just is completely baffled, and everyone is terrified because they don't know what he's going to decide from one minute to Yeah, I'm going to catch Hades from, uh, from Trump supporters. But the last few weeks, particularly, as I've been watching what's been going on in Washington, I yeah. feel like I've been I feel like I've been participating in a political version of Mad Magazine. Well, of course it's Mad Magazine. I mean, it's absolutely insane what's been going on. And you know, I mean, I you know, everyone. I mean, uh, Republicans are terrified because you know the the way he's gone after Kim Jong Un, and you know, is he re- are we really going to get into a nuclear war? Um, I think that you know the the what he did with the Iran uh, decertifying the Iran deal was is terrified so many people because they're afraid that if if you if you say to the Iranians you're not living up to your agreement they'll say okay fine then let's break it and we'll just build a nuclear weapon and that's just going to I mean even the Israelis are saying that would be a catastrophe for them because right now they don't have to worry about Iran from a nuclear standpoint and then of course the North Koreans will say well you know why try to even negotiate because they don't keep their word and and then it hurts us from a foreign policy standpoint because people don't people our allies feel that we're not keeping our word and then you you know that the whole health care with the obamacare and the insurance which he's done this week is uh, there was there's a chart on on uh, the internet today that talks about shows how many the people who are going to be hurt the most from this by losing their health care are the trump voters and and that's just a tragedy so i i mean it's just it just sort of goes on and on and you uh, you know, and and I think the twittering leaves everybody feeling kind of um, dis disjointed. I mean, people feel, uh, you know, it's almost like 
the ground is not stable under you. Everybody's walking around and feeling as though they they're not walking on on solid earth. Um, you know, and it's sort of I I can't even describe it, but it's it, people are, and then I'm talking about everybody in the military. Um, I know a lot of military people, obviously, because of, but the military, the 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 Republicans on the Hill, the Democrats, the members of White House. I mean, nobody has ever seen so much leaking, ever, as there is in the It is. House. It is even everybody from a... leaks about everything. And, yeah. I mean, even the people closest to Trump. I mean, I'm a journalist, and I know who the sources are, you know. I mean, it's just shocking that the people who are so close to him will say such negative things about him to, to journalists. So clearly, we have to take a break here and have to talk about your book, but clearly this cannot continue then. No, it can't. But I don't, you know, I mean, nobody quite knows what to do about it. Well, hasn't, hasn't the Democratic Party proven itself to be somewhat or significantly dysfunctional? Because I don't see any really concentrated and well thought out response to Mr. Trump. And I see a lot of Democrats trying to carve out territory for themselves in what they seem to consider to be a climate of opportunity. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Democrats are a mess, too. I mean, there's no leadership in the Democratic Party at all. And, you know, basically their role now is just sort of anything that's anti-Trump. <laughs> you know, it, you know they're, they're just sort of there. They're on the defensive all the time. And so I don't see any Democrats that are sort of coming forward and being being on the offensive and saying, here's what we need to do, because I think everybody is just people are punch drunk. You know, I mean, it's just they're trying to sort of stay on, on an even keel and, and try to keep the Congress going. But, you know, when you've got the Republicans also a mess and they're and, and, you know, Trump is attacking McConnell and Corker and all of the leaders of his own party, then, you know, nobody quite knows what to do. Yeah, I, I think mean, you should take right. that. I, yeah, I think you should take the IQ test. I don't think that's going to happen. It'll be fun. <laughs> You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Sally Quinn is my guest. Her book is a Finding Magic, a Spiritual Memoir, published by HarperCollins. Um, I could talk politics with you all day, Sally, but we have to talk about your book, and it's fascinating. How, how do you decide what to include in your in your when you write a memoir you're telling everybody about your life, the things that, that happened to you. You share your life in your words with people whose job it then it is to decide whether you did a good job of it. Well, first of all, this is a, a spiritual memoir. Right. And it's, it start, I, I was asked to write this um, after I started um, a website for the Washington Post a long years ago, uh, 11 years ago. It was, it was a, a, a religion website called On Faith, right. and I was an atheist at the time I started it, and I had been an atheist all of my life, um, starting when I was four years old, when my father, who was in the military, came back from World War II. He had liberated Dachau and taken pictures of the concentration camp and all of the bodies, and he made scrapbooks. And uh, I found the scrapbooks, and of course we had no TV at that time, and I said to him, Daddy, what was this? I mean, he explained it to me, and I said, did, did God know about this? And he said, yes. And I said, well, how could he have let this happen? And my father said, well, God works in mysterious ways. We don't have the answers to everything. And I was devastated because I was very religious at that point, and I was saying my prayers to God every night, asking him to protect my family, and all I could think about 
were those little Jewish children who were in the concentration camps, and their parents separated from their parents, and they were all praying to the same God, and look what happened to them. And so it became clear to me that there was no God, and I stopped believing in God, and I I, um, you know, I, I, I never told anybody because I was, you know, embarrassed to tell people, and it was horrible for me to not believe in God. And um, so anyway, I, I was for a long time an atheist and, and just an angry atheist, actually, until I had lunch with this friend of mine, John Meacham, who was a, a Christian and a religion scholar, and he was editor of Newsweek, and he and I started the website together eventually, and he said, you're not an atheist because it's a negative word and you're not a negative person, and you should need, you need to go out and study religion and come back and then tell me if you're still an atheist. And But I, it, it, I started reading about religion, and I got really excited about it and interested in it, and I ended up starting this website, and then I took a trip around the world to study the great faiths. And, um, and, and so I began to sort of look at religion and faith differently because there were so many different faiths. And when we started the website, I interviewed thousands of people uh, about their faith, and, and nobody ever had the same idea of what God was. I always asked people, you know, what is God to you? And no one had the same answer. And I just got more and more involved in it. And then my husband, Ben Bradley, got dementia um, my son Quinn uh, had been born with a hole in his heart and had heart surgery and, and was near death on and off for the first 16 years of his life. And and I took care of him. I had to quit my job at the Post. And then in the last two years of Ben's life, when he was really declining, I took I stopped working and took care of him. And I had written I had signed a contract to write a book about how an atheist could start a religion website. Um, and so when I, I, I couldn't write, but as soon as Ben died, I decided I had to write. And so I started writing about his decline and his death. And then uh, you ask how you make decisions. I went back through, because knowing this was a spiritual memoir, I went back through my life and chose and the things that I remembered that had some sort of epiphany or some moment of spirituality or some recognition or some illumination that took me along the way to the path that I finally, where I finally came to, a, you know, the end of this path, which is to realize that I was a deeply spiritual person, that I was not an atheist, and I had actually never been an atheist, but I had not recognized the spirituality in my life. I had just not seen it for what it was. And Taking care of Ben was was probably the most spiritual thing I ever did in my life. It was also the hardest thing, but it gave my life meaning, and and so it, it became clear to me that we're all looking for meaning in our lives. And for me, what gave my life meaning was loving the people in my life. My my you know son taking care of Quinn, who's now 35 and thriving. And both of my parents died in my arms, and my mother was a stroke victim for 12 years. I took care of her. Um, and so I, I just sort of, I, I led up to this moment of believing that, you know, we all, and I don't, the word agnostic doesn't work for me because it just basically says you don't know. And I think we're all agnostics, yeah. really. I mean, I think the Pope is an agnostic. He doesn't know. He believes. And I, I'm faith. sorry, I have to jump in because we literally have 10 seconds left. The yes. clock always wins in the end. But. Well, I, but what I'd like to say is that I 
finally, my spirituality was finding magic, and I believe that everyone has magic in their lives, and they just need to look for it. And they look for, they need to look not for happiness okay. to find meaning, but they need to look for meaning in their lives to find happiness. Sally, and to me, that was magic. Sally, thank you so much for the time. I hope we can speak again. Okay, I'd love to. Thank Thanks. you. Bye bye. And I don't want to commit suicide. No, don't. <laughs> Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.